Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Reason Town. This one, episode 21. I am one of your hosts, Murphy Randall, and this is your other host, Jared Forsyth. Glad to be here. We're glad to be with you today, and we are trying something new and different today, which is a screencast, a screen recording of a screencast, and we're trying to narrate as we're screencasting with each other so that this can be consumed over both video for visual education and over audio so that if you're driving in the car or cleaning the toilet or whatever, you can still learn along with us. So today what we're going to be doing is going over a new PPX that Jared has written. Not that he's ever written any PPXs before. I say sarcastically because he's the king of PPXs. He wrote a PPX for writing templates so that you don't have to learn to write a PPX to write your own PPX, if that makes sense. Right. Um, we should say PPX a couple more times. Yeah, if, I, if only I could find a way to fit them in. For those of you who don't know what a PPX is, it is the uh, method that the compiler gives us to extend the compiler with our own custom uh, compilation rules. So there, there are certain syntax areas where the compiler will allow us to reach out to a binary that we've written by hand to transform the source before it's written into binary or into to bytecode. So PPXs are great. We've talked about them a lot before on this show, but today we're going to talk about a PPX Jared wrote to allow more user-friendly uh, template writing, basically. Jared, do you want to give us a little more background on why this, is, why this came about? Sure. Oh, wait, um, pause, pause, pause. I totally forgot the sponsors. So sorry, everyone. Sorry, Jared. Um, Today, our hosting is sponsored by TylerMcGinnis.com, the linear course-based approach to learning web technologies. Thank you very much, Tyler McGinnis. And by Day One, the company I work for. We love Day One, and uh, we are grateful to Day One for letting me use company time to do this podcast. And Jared works for Khan Academy, which we love too. Right. Also, um, Tyler McGinnis just recently came out with a massive course on React and React with Hooks. Um, That's right. And he's an excellent teacher. Uh, super happy to have him sponsor the show. So if you want to get down with a new React hotness, go ahead and go to tylermcginnis.com. Yeah. All right. So now with the reason macros. Um, so PPXs, like, like you said, are for extending the syntax or extending the, the compiler behavior. Um, very similar to Babel plugins um, and um, Lisp macros. Um, these kind of things where basically you, you write a program that will transform one version of the code into another version of code. Um, and then you hand that back to the OCaml or BuckleScript compiler to turn that into JavaScript or into native. And there are lots of languages that support this, right? I mean, like C++ comes to mind has had templates forever. Right. And uh, tem template Haskell is a thing. Uh, and also Rust is kind of what inspired you with the system, right? That's right. I'm really impressed with Rust's system of doing uh, template macros um, because Rust also has what they call procedural macros, which are, which are very similar to PPXs. You get the AST, you're messing with the, the abstract syntax tree of the code, um, but, but they have a simpler system, which they call, um, I think, macro by example or program by example, something like that. Um, and it is you you write code, but then you have a couple of substitute places and you say, just um, plop this in here and put this in here. Um, so you don't even have to be messing with, oh, what kind of a syntax node is this? Um, 
You just write the code that you want to see with a couple of substitutions and it gets the job done. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, and so like, like you said, I've written a bunch of PPXs. Um, when I come across a thing where I'm like, ah, the language doesn't really do it for me. I want something simpler or um, to, to hide some complexity that I think is just getting in the way. Um, and several times when I've, when I've come out with one of these PPXs, somebody says, oh, this is so awesome. I want to learn how to do a PPX. Can you show me, like, are, are there any good tutorials? Are there any good ways to get started? Um, and it's just, it's really hard to do. It's, yeah, yeah, the answer is no, right? <laughs> right. Um, there yeah, are some person. tutorials. Um, I've done a little bit of screencasting, writing PPXs, but it is, it's kind of a brutal experience because it's very complex. There are a lot of acronyms, a lot of just terms that you've got to keep in your head and you've got to you visualize the structure of the code, all this stuff. Um, it's, it's just a very complex process. And then the programming task itself is computationally rigorous and not computationally in the sense that like your brain has to be able to understand the algorithms of transforming an abstract syntax tree, which aren't that simple. I don't think. Exactly. Anyway, um, yeah. So people, people say, Hey, you know, I would love to learn this. And I'm like, uh, I like, I want to teach you, but I also don't because it's such a painful thing to do. <laughs> um, I, I don't want to wish this on you. Um, and so just for the past several years, I've been, I've had this idea in my head of, you know, Rust has this macro by example set up. It would be so nice to do that, um, in reason and, and maybe cover the 80% case of most of the things that you want to get done. Um, and then the last 20% can be, you know, messing with the, the abstract syntax tree directly. Perfect. Well, uh, it sounds like it's not just a dream anymore. That's right. Um, so actually, after our last uh, recording session a couple of weeks ago, um, we were talking something about this, and I, I, I mentioned that I wanted to make something like this. And I, I sat down and was like, you know, it, it really, it shouldn't be that hard. And so um, that's been my pet project the past couple of weeks. That's pretty amazing. So let's see what you did. I'm really excited to see how this has come out. Uh, is this in a usable state? Like, it, it's not published yet, right? Um, it is not, it has not been publicized yet. Um, so we're going to link to a, um, a web URL where you can go and play with this in, um, in a code mirror editor, um, at the end. And, um, there's also, I, I published today an NPM package that will allow you to do this in your BuckleScript code today. Um, mm -hmm. there are some little gotchas about how it works and how it integrates with BuckleScript. Um, but, but it, it, it should be doable. Okay, great. Well then let's get started. So you've got your code editor up here for those who are just listening. Uh, Jerry's got his code editor up in front of me and he has two tabs open. They're both called hello.re on the left side. We've got some source and on the right side, it looks like the source, but expanded and rewritten. Is that right? That's right. So using the feature of reason VS code, um, where you can say, show the fully PPX source for this file. So show me what happens after you've run all of the preprocessors on this. Um, what is the code that comes out the other end? Great. Okay. So over on the left-hand side, what's the first thing you're going to show us? Um, a very simple macro um, that um, really should just be a function, but um, it, it'll hopefully serve our purposes. 
um, and we're using the let percent macro um, token to say this is we're, we're defining a new macro. We give it a name, add five, great, um, and it takes an integer, um, and then it uh, it returns a little chunk of code, which is the the input integer plus five. And this is literally just a function definition. Like it's let let with let macro, like you said, let percent macro to say that we're defining a macro. But what follows is just a function definition. You got input type int, and then a fat arrow, and on the right hand side of the fat arrow is a body of a function. That's right. Um, and so a, a couple of special things to well, and and then the next line we have is using that macro. Um, so okay. let some number equals. And now we're, we're going to call the macro using the square brackets, the percent sign, and then add five, which is the name we gave it. Now, can you tell me about that? What is that syntax called? I always feel like it's awkward to type, and I also don't know what to call it. But it's a square bracket percent, some symbol, then a space, and then some expression, and then a square bracket again. That's right. This is the extension points syntax. Okay. Um, and extension points meaning this is um, the, the OCaml syntax has defined this section of code or that this type of token to mean some preprocessor is going to replace this 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 entire thing everything that's inside the square brackets that's right okay and in fact if um if you're somehow have your build setup misconfigured so nothing comes through and replaces this uh, it's a compiler error okay um so um if i if i change this to add four um, I get an error that says uninterpreted ext extension add four. Great. Something okay. was supposed to deal with this and it didn't. That makes sense. So when we're doing BuckleScript, there are some things here we do like percent vs.raw and that means that BuckleScript has some built-in PPXs that take the, the content, the expression that's inside of that and transforms it using BuckleScript specific stuff. Exactly. Great. Um, so interesting things about this. When you're working with macros. Um, the type system has not run. Um, this all happens before OCaml's type system happens. Um, so for example, if I wanted to use a variable um, and then use that variable in here, um, that's going to be an error um, because we don't, um, the I, I declared input to be an integer, and that means an integer constant. Okay. Um, so what Jared has done is he's just taken that square bracket syntax with add five, where he was calling his macro from before. He has add five space 15, just an integer constant right now. So he's calling add five with the value 15, and he swapped that out for a variable uh, that was called like number, right? And then that was assigned to the value 15. And he said, that doesn't work because? Um, because I declared the macro to take an integer and um, that means it has to be a constant because the type system hasn't run to tell me that this variable is an integer. Interesting. Okay. Um, so now, of course, if I don't declare it to be an integer, um, then it's assumed to be an expression, and then that's fine. It just works. It just works. Interesting. Um, okay. But I won't be able to do um, pre-evaluated math um, because, again, the the macro doesn't know, the macro system doesn't know what the value is, and so it won't be able to, to work with it. So that, that would be a runtime thing. It just drops in that function, basically, as a replacement instead of evaluating the result of the function. Um, yeah, it, it, it drops in, so the result is num plus five instead of 
um, you know, 15 plus five, right. which we had before. Okay, I see. So now what if, what if you did plus plus five, or I don't know, what if you did something that was a, a syntax error here? Um, not a syntax error, but like number is 15. What if number were a string? Sorry, not plus plus. Uh, so you, if you put it back to what it was, where you're taking the eval input and you're adding five, and then take num and you convert it to a string, yeah, will you get a compiler error? Uh, yes, you will. Um, and so it is saying, you know, you you passed in add five with hello, which is this this input very um, variable, and this has now been determined to be a string by the type system, and but it's supposed to be an int because you're adding it. Because it's already done the syntax transform, and now the type system is running. Exactly. Okay, great. Um, so another funny thing about here is instead of input, I'm I'm doing eval double underscore input. Okay. Oh, interesting. So yeah, for listeners, he's the argument name is input, and then the argument reference in the body is eval double underscore input. Right. And this is how um, anytime you see eval in the macro system, it means I am. Um, th this is going to be evaluated at macro time and not. Um, later on in the compilers. Uh, so that's setup. part of your macro system. That's part yes. of what you wrote. Okay, great. Um, if I just do input, um, then we're going to get a different error, which is... Um, that's an ugly error. Uh, yeah, let's, let's do something that's not a predefined function. Um, so this, um, this is saying this value is unbound because what's happening, and my the, the PPX replacer over on the right um, unfortunately doesn't give us what happens if there's a type error. Okay, yes. Um, so we could actually, did. Um, let's actually just jump over to um, AST Explorer for a second. Brilliant. Um, so, and do macro add five um, with input and then input plus five. Um, and you see what the, the result is in the bottom right is some number equals input plus five. It didn't, it didn't do the variable replacement. Yeah, input didn't exist. Okay. Um, and that, that's because what, what you're defining in the macro is the template. Um, and everything is, is assumed by default to be um, normal code that you want to still be there when the macro has run. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, because you, you can imagine, you know, um, we're, you know, de defining some variable. Um, and so let awesome equals 10 still exists in the output um, because th there's no evaluating going on. Yeah, he added awesome, a variable called awesome inside the macro body. Yeah. Um, and it's saved no. in the result. Okay, um, I, can, I can elevate awesome to be a macro level variable by doing... Um, let percent eval, um, and then the reference eval double underscore awesome. Ah, interesting, interesting. Okay. Um, so this is that. There's kind of two different um, scopes to be thinking about. One is the one that runs at macro time, and the other is the stuff that's in the resulting code. Kind of blows my mind a little bit. Okay. So the arguments to the function are by default macro level macro level arguments. Right. Yes, all all of the all of the macro arguments are macro level. Okay, so so those are those are macro arguments. So the arguments that 
come to the right-hand side of the equal function when you're defining a macro are macro arguments. So they must be referred to in the function body, the function of the macro with the eval dot underscore underscore prefix. That's right. Great. Um, Makes a lot of sense. So next, let's, let's get into something that's actually useful. Yeah, let's do that. Um, and this little ion icon macro um, is one of, one of the things that has been in my mind the past couple of months because I have a, um, a file called ionicons.re in a, in a project that I did. And it is, it is 220 lines of basically the same code repeated after itself again and again. It's just wrapping the ion icons React component library, it appears. Right. So I'm, I'm pulling out individual components. There's the iOS link component. There's the MD download component, all of these. Um, but I can't, I can't use um, OCaml's built-in systems for abstraction because there's no way to have a variable named module. Yes. Like I can't say, I want to make a module and I'm going to decide on the name later because right. modules are this, this top-level pre- you know, they're, they're the special thing. Which is probably good because if you could do that, it would melt brains a little bit. It would also super mess with OCaml's compilation setup and make it a lot slower. Okay, great. So that's a trade-off we're happy to make. Right. The other thing you definitely can't do is you can't do anything fancy with the right-hand side of an external. Ah, okay. Um, Nothing this, dynamic there, yeah. Yeah, this string literal is interpreted by BuckleScript directly. Um, you, you can't do, you know, like, let's do some string concatenation plus plus mm, yeah. iOS link. That, that is invalid syntax. It yeah, doesn't that make sense. Um, so I wanted a, a setup that would allow me to um, deduplicate this, this massive amount of code because there's, there's nothing different here. I'm getting really excited right now. This is, this is pretty great. Yeah, so, so this, is, this is the Ionicon macro. Basically, I, I just copied in, again, with, with the template idea, I copied in directly one of them, and then I, I changed out the, the two things that needed to change. Um, Which are the icon name. The, and so the, and the, the name of the module, which okay. I wanted to be dynamic, and the, the require path of the component. Wow. So what Jared has here is on the, on the left-hand side of the equal sign, he has let percent macro dot top level, which you'll explain in a moment, I suppose. Ion icon equals, so there's the left-hand side, and the right-hand side has some arguments, name and icon name. Then there's the fat arrow, which says we're going to define the body of the macro now. And inside of there, you have uh, a... A square bracket percent. I already forgot what those are called. An extension point. An extension point that says percent stir str, and then inside of that you have a module definition, and the module name has eval underscore name, and then there's all the code that you talked about before, the React component, the external React component definition. That's right. So tell us the new stuff here. Yeah. So so macro dot top level um, means the thing that I'm going to be producing is not an expression. By default, macros are, I'm making an expression. Um, but uh, module definitions are not expressions. Um, and so there's, there's a difference in, in reason and OCaml code between um, what's called a, a structure item, 
um, which is a, a top level thing. It can be a declaration. Um, it can be an external. Um, it can be a module, things like that. Um, and then just about everything else is an expression, except, I mean, there, there are patterns and types. Um, but yeah, you know, anything inside the, the body of a function is an expression. Um, and so that's, that's the default when you're making a macro. But for if, if you're making a macro that needs to return a module definition, it needs to be top level. OK, that makes sense. Um, and so this, this percent stir also means top level. I should probably change it to just be percent top level um, for consistency's sake. So percent um, stir is something you wrote. Yes. Okay. Um, it's it's short for structure, and that's that's the terminology used in PPX land, but it's not yeah, actually I, necessary. I was like, that's a string. I thought it was a string eval thing. Okay. Right. Yeah, top um, level would make a lot more sense. And no, so it, it wouldn't be possible to do something like just infer that it's that that it gets wrapped in that top level um, extension point because you're already doing let macro dot top level. Um. That's right, because it's actually a change in the parser. Okay. Um, because the, the parser, if, if I put external this in an expression It'll parse place, it as... It's a parse error. That's why you got to put it inside of an extension point. Yes. Okay, great. Um, yeah, so, so this is um, also required when you're making a top level. Um, and the, the, the change from stir to top level, I think, is a, is a good change. Right. Yeah, that'll, that'll help. Um, and then I have eval underscore name. It's capital eval this time because module names have to be capitalized. Um, and then in here, the, the other fancy thing is we've got some string interpolation. Oh, um, okay. And so this will happen. Um, let's see, I, I removed the other example of string interpolation. Let me just get that back. So while you're doing that, in the right-hand side of the external definition, inside of the extension point for the structure, hopefully everyone who's listening can follow along with that, yeah, there's the, the string for the JavaScript name that's being linked to, which is react-ioniCon slash lib slash, and here we have a special dollar sign eval, and then an open curly brace icon name, and then close curly brace. And that is within the string. So this is not especially, this is an interpolated string. This isn't like a curly brace with J in it, like we're used to. This is a normal string that has that dollar sign eval inside of it. That's right. Um, and so it, it has to be this special interpolation because, like I said before, nothing, nothing other than a string literal will parse in this um, situation. Makes sense. Um, and so as you can see on the right, what happens is um, the result is react ionicon slash lib slash iOS link. In this case, yeah. Um, so the cat. Yeah. So so name when you're calling it. Uh, let's talk about how this is called really quickly, so that we can get a, an idea here. Uh, right. Why don't you go down to on the left hand side to where ion icon is called? Yeah. Um, and and refunct makes it look weird, so I'm gonna change it back. Can you actually explain that for a moment? Why does re, why does refunct drop the outer square braces of, an ex of a top level extension point and it also drops the second percent because it looks like when you're doing a top level extension point it, it requires two percents that's right um so this is an aesthetic choice that somebody made 
about what Refump should do. Um, it was at the same time that um, top-level decorators lost their square bases by default. Okay. Um, I didn't know that that was a thing you could do either. So I think that's a thing. Ooh, it looks like it's a syntax error. Um, maybe it's only in a... Okay, maybe, maybe that didn't happen. I don't know. But it, it was a, a thing that happened a year or so ago, maybe. So in any case, the, uh, the parser actually supports a top-level extension point dropping the square braces and using 1% sign. Right. Okay, so that's actually fine with me. Yeah, um, and that's, that's the default. I, I don't like it as much for this case because um, with, with the braces and everything on the same line, it, it looks more like a function call. Yeah. Um, but so, yeah, when we are calling this macro, we've got the double percent ionicon and then the two arguments. So you've got a tuple there, and the two arguments are not strings, they're actual names like you typed names into uh into the code directly so those aren't strings so how does that work out um so technically in the ast these um come out to be um uh constructors of um of variants so you know it, like it it thinks that there's some type definition somewhere with with link Right. Or iOS link or whatever. So that's syntactically okay. You've got, you've, you have uppercase L link and uppercase I iOS link. Uh, and that's syntactically okay. But since you're going to be taking that out of the source at, at compile time and transforming the source, you can just drop those in there and it's fine. Right. It doesn't matter that there is no actual link defined anywhere. That's really interesting. So in the macro, uh, you have those types being cap ident. Is that a type that you made up? Um, so these are, um, th there are a number of different types that you can use in macros. Um, there's int, string, float. Um, again, these are all constants. Um, also bool. And then there's ident, cap ident, long ident, and long cap ident. Whoa, okay. Um, and these names are also up for debate um, if people uh, have opinions about it. So you get an um, identifier, a capitalized identifier. And then the long means this is namespaced, potentially. Oh, so like foo.bar.whatever. Yeah. Um, or just bar. Like, um, it doesn't have to be namespaced, but it allows namespacing. Yeah, that makes Whereas sense. the first two don't allow namespacing. Okay, great. Um, and That's so for... For name, I don't allow namespacing because it needs to be a module name. Um, okay. If if I called this a long cap ident, um, it would be a macro compilation error, which again isn't showing up very well. Um, but it would say, you know, you're using this. It has to be a cap ident, not a long cap ident. Okay. Great. Um, and then. String interpolation will accept just about any type and do good things with it. That's pretty amazing. Um, there's also expression and pattern are allowed as types. Um, and maybe we'll get into those in a little bit. Okay. So what over on the right-hand side then, what I see is the actual module for a link, 
with all of the code for the React component placed inside of it, which is pretty amazing. Tell me about that weird string at the end. That's BuckleScript 5.04. What is that? Um, that is a signature that BuckleScript attaches to externals. Um, okay. So if you're if you're looking at this in AST Explorer, you won't see that. Okay. Um, because AST Explorer doesn't actually run um, BuckleScript's preprocessors. Okay. Yet. I see. I see. So what we see in AST Explorer right now uh, is basically just the exact source for the the macro with the correct interpolations re replaced with no weird buckle script string. But what we see in the editor is there's a big string full of uh, Unicode characters um, right. that is placed after the last string in the in the extension point for the buckle script compiler. Right. Um, but that doesn't that doesn't hurt anything. That can be there, and it's not a problem, right? Right. It's fine. Um, but what we have is module link equals and module download equals um, created just from these two lines, which is pretty amazing. That's awesome. Um, yeah. So so this is this is a great example of of the power of having a template, um, dropping things in. Um, and then OCaml is happy because you're not trying to do anything fancy at, at runtime. It's all done at compile time. Now, is it okay if I throw a curveball at you here and ask, would it be possible to make the props also dynamic? So let's say I want to have you know, a variable set of props merged in here in this React component. So I've got, right now you have class name, font size, color, and onclick defined as props for this React component. What if I wanted to be able to do that at macro time and say, these are the prop names that I support? That would be complex, obviously, because I'd have to give the types too, but would it be possible? Um, theoretically possible. Um, okay. the, the macro system doesn't support that yet. Um, but it's definitely, I definitely have plans around um, that kind of thing. Great. Okay, cool. Um, all right. So let's, let's move down to um, this example, which is let's re-implement let anything. Okay. So let anything for those who haven't watched before is a PPX that Jared wrote that basically just takes away the pain of callbacks for, for us. So it takes anything that it, it takes let percent some module name. And then on the right hand side, um, you have an expression that returns. Uh, well, let's just let's just do this specific case of like, it returns a promise. What it does is it'll take your source code and transform it so that all the code inside of the function following that let declaration gets put into a callback. So you don't at compile time so that visually your code is flat, you have a lot of variables in scope, but uh, at runtime you have nested callbacks and, uh, and the code just behaves like, like it would uh, if you were expecting callbacks. That's right. It's essentially um, the same uh, basic thing as async await does um, in JavaScript. Right. Um, so, uh, let's let's look at the the async example because we just described it. Um, here is the code that looks almost exactly like it would if you're using let anything. Um, so do something async is a function. We've got let percent async text equals fetch hello, and then again percent async more equals text arrow json. So this is as 
as if you were working with the JavaScript fetch API that is very promise-based. Um, yeah. And if you're just doing that with nested promises, it gets really hairy. Um, and the thing that it has compiled to on the right-hand side is using js.promise.then in all the right places. Um, so it, it's just, this is the code you would have written, but it looks a lot nicer. That's amazing. I love it. Um, and so the macro definition is, again, a new, a new kind of macro, a macro.let. Okay. Um, where at the, earlier we had plain macro, which is an expression macro, macro.top level, um, which is for module definitions primarily and externals. Um, and then macro.let is saying, I want a macro that works with, as a let percent. Something. Okay, that makes sense. Um, and uh, let macros have a, um, have a predefined number of arguments and types of arguments. Great. Um, because there's a pattern, which is everything on the left-hand side of the equals. There's a value, which is everything on the right-hand side of the equals. And then the continuation, which is everything after the let, the, the expression that's evaluated with the, that pattern bound to that value. Okay. Um, so we could, we could play with this a little bit and say, like, what is, what is the continuation? Um, so right now, Jared commented out the body of the macro at, that existed with the js.promise.then. Inside the macro body, he had done js.promise.then, eval pattern, uh, then returns eval continuation, et cetera. He's commenting it out. And now he's showing us what it would look like if the macro just had the eval continuation in it. What would that look like? Right. So um, in the continuation, it just um, gives the expression that's after the let binding. We don't see text anywhere because we haven't used the pattern. We don't see fetch hello anywhere because we haven't used the value. Right. That makes sense. Um, and so what we're doing now is taking the pattern, the value, and continuation, dropping them into um, the promise.then function. Um, and this is, this is a really easy straight across because promise.then takes a function which the, the argument is a pattern, and the body is the continuation, and then the value is the promise that's being evaluated. It's pretty amazing, though. Um, to, to give her another example of another let macro, this is with optionals. Um, again, we've got pattern, value, continuation. And what you want to do is you want to switch on the value. And if it's a none, you go to none. If it's sum, you want to bind the pattern with um, the contents of the optional. And then the body that's the result is the continuation. And so now we get to have a function that is dealing with a couple of optionals. Say you're um, you're working with uh, various config values, and they need to all be there in order for you to be able to do anything. Um, and so this this kind of um, does almost a similar thing to the null, null coalescing operator in JavaScript, where I only care about going forward if everything is the happy path. Yes. So this is like null coalescing in JavaScript, like you said, which is actually uh, moving forward in the approval process right now. So probably right. not a lot of people have used it. Um, but if you've used Swift, this exists in Swift with the, the question mark um, and or the, the bang. I think you can use a bang to say like, maybe, maybe that's actually like force get. Um, but this would be more analogous to if you've used Scala for notation in Scala. 
which um, is a monadic bind, uh, if you know what that is. If you don't, don't worry about it. But that's also available as do notation in Haskell. So this is kind of the same idea as all of those, right? That's right. Um, and so just to demonstrate a little more what is happening with this um, replacement, let's say um, you know, in, in the resulting code, we, um, we want, what if we want the nuns to be first? Just like, so that the, the happy path is at the very end. Let's switch this around. Um, and you can see Amazing. Um, now the nuns are first, then we have some, and the happy path is at the very end. So what we see on the right-hand side is that the actual body of the function is compiled to two nested switch statements on the optionals that Jared is binding. So that, um, so that the actual results, the resulting expression we have in the call to the macro is, uh, has both of the option contents available in scope. Um, and so over on the right-hand side, that's where the code we don't see that the compiler sees, that's the stuff that deals with the super nested gross switch statements. That's right. Gross, but uh, kind of hard to visually parse. Right. Um, so this is um, hopefully a taste of um, the various things you can do with a macro. Anywhere that you have um, an identifier, you can, um, you can do a replacement there. Um, maybe let's, let's go up to the top and do something more interesting with this add five. Um, let's, let's say now this needs to be an identifier and um, we're gonna do, um, we're gonna bind that um, whatever identifier you gave us to a value. Um, and then, I don't know, do, do something else. Um, and what this results to is I passed in num as the identifier and it gives me let num equals 10. Um, or say I want to um, be producing a function and um, the, I want the argument name to be um, something specific. Um, the resulting function, if I played my cards right, I might not have played my cards right, um, <laughs> would, uh, would have num in the identifier, ideally. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there. Did, yeah. You, did you do it? No. So, so, so this one um, says, I want to reference uh, an external variable. Oh. Um, wow. So this takes a reference to an external variable as part of the argument of the macro and substitutes the call to that variable inside the body of the macro, which is pretty amazing. Right. So um, let's go ahead. And so those of you that are familiar with macro systems might be wondering about hygiene. Um, the, the short answer is no. Um, these macros are at the moment non-hygienic. I haven't messed with that at all. Um, if you have opinions about it, let me know. What does the hygiene mean? Um, hygiene has to do with making sure that macros don't step on each other. Ah, okay. Um, and so, for example, if I do let num equals five, um, this, is, this is breaking hygiene because you might have said, I expect this num to reference the num that's right here, but I've, I've rebound that num inside the macro and you might not have known about it. Yeah, that makes sense. So hygienic micro, yeah. macros go through and replace any identifier 
that hasn't been passed in with some guaranteed to be unique thing. Okay. Um, like now I'm 15. Um, so that this behavior doesn't happen. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I currently don't do anything but like that. I'm not super sure that I want to. Um, just because these are these are intentionally quite simple. And sometimes simple is exactly what we're going for. Just for debugability's sake and comprehensibility. So let's say we wanted to write a macro that would make debugging or logging uh, a value easy, right? So mm -hmm. let's say like we wanted to log a value and also log the, the file and the line um, where that value was. Yeah. I won't go into the we won't like my ultimate goal would be let's say you wanted to log a, an OCaml record as a JS object, but that sounds like the, the the macro system probably isn't ready for that kind of type reflection. Is that right? That's right. Anything that involves um, digging into the type system is not going to work. Okay, this is this is literally just for like I want to write some code, and I need I don't want to like copy paste a million times, and so I just write these macros to do it. Right. Um, so you can you can do like a, a trace macro that is um, let's see is this gonna um, so I, I haven't gotten into any of the um, any of the fancy eval stuff yet um, okay so let's do that um, what if you have, um, so this is now going to take two arguments. Um, one is a, is a Boolean literal. Um, and I'm going to do if eval log, then I'm going to do js.log in the input. Otherwise, or, you know, that, that just evaluates to units, so it's fine. Um, and now we are doing js.log. Oh, and I, I forgot the, the eval underscore. Um, so now it will log the num and then do that plus five. If I don't, if I pass in false, it won't do that. So you've modified your add five macro to just say, to add an argument that says, should I log this or not? And uh, you switched on the result of, of that macro argument. So the if eval is working at the uh, the macro the macro button. time. Yeah. So that's why you didn't do eval underscore log. You said if eval log um, with no prefix. So that's, so that's actually code that's running at macro time. And exactly. the result is what, what comes out. Wow, that's pretty amazing. That's right. Um, and so we can also, if, if we're working with integer um, literals, we can, do, um, we can do some comparison. Oh, so you could do the log level, for example. So yeah. you could say like log.debug or something. Could you do, uh, you can, probably can't do like switches and type constructors here. So you couldn't have like different log levels, right? Uh, we can. <gasps> mind blown. My mind so, um, and let's see. This might work. This might not. Let's see. Um, and no, that won't work. So um, Jared's now trying to figure out how we could pass in some kind of variant or polymorphic variant as the log argument to this to this add five macro to see if we could say, you know, if the log level is error, then go ahead and log this. Otherwise, don't. 
Um, so what we can do is is pass in a, um, a string, a string, and switch on that. Um, yeah, but you can pass in an identifier. Right. Um, so, um, and if if we want to make it like act um, like a like a variant, um, we can, you know, make it fail if um, you pass in something that's not expected. Um, so there, there was an exhaustiveness check. Okay. Um, is that supposed to be uh, doing a compiler error right now? Um, it is. You can't see it very well. Again, the the reporting here is a little messed up. Okay. Um, but yeah. So. Um, you can do switches. You can do ifs. I'm I'm planning to support something like um, a like a a polyvariant type, um, so that you could do error and that would work. Okay. Yeah. Um, Ideally, it would be like at some place in your code you've set the actual log level, and then these logs will only log if it's greater than or equal to the log level that's globally set, or something like that. Um, right, but you can't, um, you can't have runtime values interacting with macro time values. Yes, that makes sense. So what you, your macro would actually do a runtime switch, not a macro time switch. So they wouldn't be compiled out at compile time unless you had, um, like if you, if you wanted to say like modify your source code so that you had the node end equal to, when the node end is production, I actually like put macro in my source that says that the log level is X or Y. Then exactly. recompilation, you could go through and strip out at compile time all of your non-irrelevant log logging code. That's right. That's cool. Um, some other fun things that I've added. Um, uh, let's see. You can do um, like let's get an an end variable. Um, whoa, whoa, whoa! Okay, so Jerry just said inside the macro let editor equals percent eval env editor, and on the right hand side it subbed in the his environment variable value for his editor, which is envim or for neovim. So that's actually looking at your current runtime environment at compilation time and dropping those values into this compiled source. That's right. That's awesome. So you could definitely use your node end uh, there to see. Right. Wow. Um, so in that case, what you could do is if you wanted to, if you wanted to set up your debug logging macro here, you could set your debug log level in the environment and um, your compile time environment, and it would strip out any logs that that weren't relevant at compile time. So you couldn't like at runtime go ahead and change the log level. You'd have to you'd have to change that at compile time. So you'd you'd change your environment variable, redo a build, and then deploy, and you could change your log level. That's right. Um, now another thing you want to be careful about is this does um, violate. Well. Um, this does violate some caching assumptions that BuckleScript makes. Okay. Or that OCaml makes, right? 
Um, because if, if you just rerun BuckleScript with the node environment set to something else, BuckleScript will say, I don't need to recompile anything. I've already compiled it. Okay, I'm yeah. changing any source. It's not detecting your env. Right, so you'd need to clean and then rebuild. That makes sense. Um, so one of the one of the things that this um, this can do, I'm I've uh, imagined um, like let's do a um, let's see um, like a, a platform macro um, that takes um, platforms and then does, uh, let's see, um, like some, some platform, let's say it's, um, JS. And so then, then you would use this with, um, JS to 10 and, um, windows to 20, um, So, and th this is getting a little, a little fancy here, um, and it might not like what I've done, but basically the the platform dot select from React Native, um, where you can say I want that this is this is conditional compilation on the host platform. Okay. Right? So if, if I'm going to JavaScript, I want one thing. If I'm going to Windows, I want something else. Right, yeah. Um, and this could get environmental variable that is, um, you know, if, if there's a, a platform name here. Um, and um, so basically, and it, it would pull out the, the platform, the expression from the appropriate platform. Yeah, that's way cool. I, w I wouldn't be needing it probably, but like you said, like it's getting pretty fancy, but that's, so like if there were code that you, you wanted stripped out at compile time on that specific platform, so it wasn't hanging around, um, then you could use that switch to say, oh, I'm on Windows, so I'm not even gonna include that Unix path compilation stuff or whatever. Right, because it, it also might be invalid. Um, like that module might not exist if you're yes. compiling to JavaScript or compiling to native. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so this is this is a potential for doing um, more cross-platform code. Well, this is great. So so there's already a lot that you can do with this. It's very flexible. There's a lot to come. It sounds like as well. So kind of what are what are the future plans here? Um, yeah. So future plans include um, making uh, like s supporting arguments. Um, so function arguments are, uh, their own special thing. Um, and specifically allowing you to have multiple things. Like, um, I, I want to spread in, like, what does it, what does it mean to spread in these arguments? Um, from like that, this would be invalid syntax. Um, but um, having having some kind of an indicator, um, also being able to do 
macro time mapping and reducing over an array of something. Um, wow. Yeah, that's, that sounds amazing. Um, so just, just some of the things that are a little bit more complicated, um, and it would still be nice to be able to do them without reaching for the full PPX. Yeah, totally. That makes a lot of sense. And then ever, would it ever be possible to do type reflection? Probably not because this runs before the type system runs, right? That's right. Um, so, um, one of the things that can be done is, um, I mean, so you're a, you're a big fan of Deco, right? Yeah, Deco is a, a PPX that allows us to generate encoders and decoders, JSON decoders and decoders, based on the type that is uh, written out in the record. So you can just put a record, this is what Jared's doing on the screen right now, write a record and then decorate it at the top with at deco and it goes ahead and it produces um, a decoder that uses the field on the left hand side as the field name in the JSON and the type on the right hand side as the type. So you don't actually have to do type reflection is what Jared's saying here because you've got the, the names of the types on the right hand side, right? Right. So, so I'm, I'm trying, I'm not quite sure how I would want to do it, but I would like to support um, so some people when I announced this said, oh, you know, I'd love to be able to make custom uh, PPX deriving, which, which is a similar thing to what Deco is doing, um, where I want to um, produce some functions that operate on this type automatically. Right. Um, and I haven't I haven't yet come up with an API that would be flexible enough and easy to use, but um, but it's something that I'd love to support. You'd have to somehow accept like a type definition inside of your macro arguments or something like that, right? And it would give right. you an array or a map or or a JS object, not a JS object, but like an OCaml object with the field names and their values or something, something like that, right? Right. And then you have to be able to support iterating over them and doing something with them. Yeah, or or it's possible that that you there would be like a you know macro dot deriving um, that you define, and all you do is you say if I have a, a a tuple type, this is how you turn it into X. If I have um, you know a, a normal type constructor. This is how I turn it into Y, and so you you just kind of are are pattern matching on the kinds of things that can show up on the right hand side. Yeah, um, you'd have to somehow like pr produce values for all of those types. Exactly. So you would say, oh, this is what deriving supports, and these these are the values, and that's kind of how uh, derived generic, I believe, works in Haskell when you're when you're using their generic deriving. Is basically you just say like like they've implemented a bunch of stuff for the basic types, strings, tuples, lists, et cetera. And your type, um, which is almost always just a concatenation of those other types, if you just say, hey, derive generic, they can actually generate a compound decoder and encoder and show or whatever because all of those base constructors exist. Exactly. That would be brilliant because then if you did your own macro.deriving, you could say, this is how you convert all these basic types to JSON, and then it would do it for you. Um, right. Or this is how you convert it to a JS log string or whatever, right? Yeah. 
which is way cool because you could support different JSON formats. Um, you could do all kinds of stuff there. So that's right. You could do serialization to protobufs instead of JSON, all kinds of stuff. So that's kind of the ideas for the future. That sounds awesome, Jared. How can people help and support you? Um, so um, definitely try it out. Um, if you go to astexplorer-macros.search.sh, we'll put that in the show notes, um, you can um, put, you, you can try the macro, um, any of the examples we've done here, um, and see what the resulting code is. Um, and uh, if, if you have a, a PPX that you love, or you've always wanted to make one, but it was too hard, um, send me those examples on Twitter um, so that I can know what are, what are the things that people are wanting to make. Okay, so reach out to Jared on Twitter and uh, give him your ideas for macros. Go try it out yourself. I'm just reiterating what Jared said in case you weren't listening. And also please reach out to us to let us know if this episode was helpful to you. Did you like the screencast format? Uh, did you listen to it without watching and were you totally lost? We need some feedback to know if we should do these again in the future or if we should avoid them. So please reach out to either of us on Twitter. My name on Twitter is, I believe, at Mr. Murphy Tweets. Jared's is at Jared Lee. Is that right, Jared? Or is it at Jared um, Forsyth? At Jared Forsyth on Twitter, yep. At Jared Forsyth. So at, uh, at Mr. Murphy Tweets, at Jared Forsyth, uh, or you can email us at Murphy or Jared at reason.town, I believe. That's right. And I don't know if my email's set up, but if not, Jared will get it anyway. So that's good. Um, and that's it. Thank you, everybody. Uh, and please, if you have questions or comments, also write to us. And if you have a moment, we'd love a rating on iTunes. Thank you very much. Have a great night or day. Bye.